Namaste, yogis and friends. I'm Kino McGregor. And I'm Tim Feldman. And we would like to welcome you to Miami Life Centers podcast. Hi, everyone. Hi, Hi I'm Kino. Thanks so much for coming this uh, Saturday for this talk and for our open house here at Miami Life Center. It's really lovely to see so many people here for the practice and here to share this time. We'll initiate the space of this talk together with the traditional opening prayer. And as is normal, we'll do the OM together and then if you repeat after me for the rest, that'd be great. So close your eyes for a moment. And gently tune into the quality of your breath. So just notice your breath, how you're breathing. As good yogis, you probably already took a deeper breath just when I asked you to bring your attention to it. Then notice how your body feels, just like a general check-in. Whatever you've been up to throughout the day, here you are in this moment that we shared together, and here's your body. How does it feel? And then notice the quality of your thoughts, the quality of your emotions, what you're thinking about and where the emotions seem to lie on the spectrum. Establish a beginning point with this light, mindful check-in and then bring your hands together. Shita Swatma Sukava Bode Shantie, Abahu, Guru Shakaram, Shankachakrasi, Darinam, Sahasrashirasam. Shwetam, Shwetam, Pranamami Patanjalin, Pranamami Patanjalin. Keeping the eyes closed for a moment, let your hands rest down. And notice again those three points of internal awareness, the quality of your thoughts and emotions, registering even a small, subtle shift. 
the feeling of the breath, which surely has changed ever so slightly already. And then the feeling inside the body, which may have also shifted even if ever so slightly. Understanding that it is in these three realms that the entire journey of yoga happens. And allow yourself a deeper breath. And as you exhale, open the eyes. Good, great. So you're welcome to soften your posture as well, if you like. Good. Now, we are here today because thousands of years ago, there were yoga practitioners in India who devoted themselves to this discipline of practice, kind of like developing what you could call a technology or a method to kind of hack into the operating system of the human mind. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not really a hacker. Um, I don't know if anyone who's here is a hacker, but I'm not. I I, but I have a friend of mine who you can give him an iPhone, and the things that he can do with that iPhone are incredible. You know, there are all sorts of things like jailbreaking and like interesting softwares that can download like movies that are in the current cinema and these sorts of things. And so, you know, he's kind of like a low key hacker. And he can do things with the phone that nobody else can. And it feels, well, it feels like magic. And there was a point when almost everybody went to him for advice. Like, ha, ah, can you do that cool thing with my phone? I did also. I went with my phone. I said, hey, my friend, I need to put a non-US carrier SIM card in my phone. Can you please jailbreak this thing? And um, he, jail he jailbroke it. And then I did the bad thing of updating the software. I don't know if any of you have ever tried that. But then that unjailbreaks the phone and puts it back in jail. So I sent him a message and said, excuse me, but I have uh, put my phone back in the jail. So <laughs> is there a way that you could uh, post bail from Thailand? <laughs> he was from Thailand. And um, then he sent me the step-by-step -step software to tra train me to become a hacker. And um, I followed the directions. And I, I miraculously uh, jailbroke the phone. So I, I wouldn't recommend anybody to do that. Uh, uh, so, but I'm telling you that because the human mind and this operating system that we exist in, our body, your body, your mind, is a technology, a device, very much like the iPhone or any other advanced mobile phone. And you, you have it for a period of time. You have use on it. And it has a particular operating system that's installed. And you have not necessarily been a conscious creator of that operating system, much in the same way that you're not over there in Apple headquarters chatting with the people that designed the software. Could you make my phone a little bit like that? Actually, could you make portrait mode work on video? Parentheses, why doesn't that work? Um, <laughs> so now if we think about it, we're not there in the operating system of the mind. We're here. You know, we just wake up one day and we think thoughts that we think primarily unconsciously. We have this body, we don't know how to use it. We don't know how it feels. We have this mind that, you know, neuroscience shows we only use a very small percentage of the capacity of the human brain. What's going on with the rest of the brain? It's lying there dormant. 
much the same way as the majority of us unfortunately use our technology devices. You know, we treat a computer that has this, this amazing processing power to be able to, you know, do advanced mathematical computations and we treat it like, oh, we treat it like a typewriter, you know? We type notes to our family and friends and occasionally, you know, manage to put more light on a photo and we feel extremely proud of ourselves. Look, I've lightened this photo. You can now see the face of my dog, right? <laughs> So, so then, and this is sort of how we treat our bodies as well. Here we are and we go around in the body and you know, we put various clothes on it and maybe we like it or don't like it, we think thoughts about it, but uh, the vast potential of the human body as well as the human mind is untapped and its programming has been set by kind of a, you know, a system that existed long before us and by programmers who we never really gave conscious control to sort of check off the boxes like, yeah, check off the box of self-hate. I'd really like to have that one. And could you also check off the box of you know, self-directed negativity and frustration with myself and general irritation with the world and throw in some clumsiness while you're at it because that'd be just what I want to sign up for, you know? Then you wake up, you could choose. You'd be like intelligence check, self-love check, general forgiveness towards all. And you know what? Throw in a handstand press because like <laughs> why not? It'd be fun, right? So when we think about it, what we're looking at in terms of a very contemporary analogy of what yoga and the spiritual path represent, it's like the ultimate mind hack. We're in there and you can hack into that system, that system that primarily operates in the realm of the subconscious mind, in the realm where there are thoughts and programs running that you never gave your conscious, you know, conscious consent to, but are anyhow the primary programs that run the majority of your life. They're absorbed through osmosis. They're absorbed when we're small children. They're absorbed in the womb. You know, we can't blame the parents because the same thing happened to them. And it's just this cycle of kind of incarnation that we are, you know, we're in, we're in. It's a little bit like every year, you know, there's an update to the iPhone and we're hooked. We're like, okay, I'm gonna, maybe I should impress it. I don't know, but then you press it and then it's another generation, you know? <laughs> it's just the human, uh, the human life form takes like 100 years to get the update. But, and there's only marginal improvement. So a big update is gonna come. What happens? New emojis, thank you, right? <laughs> thank you, I can now send peacocks to my friends. I like, actually, I was happy about that. I like peacocks, actually. And <laughs> there are some peacocks near my mom's house. And so I actually made use of that peacock emoji. Um, so, now if we think about this, the life hack that is the yoga practice, you can hack into that system and become something really cool. A conscious creator of the thoughts that you think. A conscious creator of the way that you feel in the body. You can access those inaccessible parts of the mind and make some really important changes in, the, in what you could call the operating system of the mind. This is the science and the technology of yoga, discovered thousands of years ago by practitioners in India, passed down to us over generations. And so we owe a big debt to all of those life hackers, those yoga hackers that sat there and tinkered with this software that's inside of the mind, and tinkered with it over and over again and never stopped. Because if we didn't, if they didn't do that, you know, we would still be around thinking that, you know, our bodies were the end result of our happiness and that the accumulation of material possessions would inevitably fill this sort of void that almost every human being has inside. Now, when we think about this, this is a wonderful gift 
something that you can be empowered. And you may feel like I felt in the yoga practice when my friend from Thailand sent me the step-by-step -step instructions of how to jailbreak my phone and install the hacker software so I could put a Swiss SIM card in. And I was also in a rush because my plane was leaving and I, I was in a bind because I had told the people who were going to meet me at the airport in Switzerland that I would text them upon arrival. My US SIM, code, SIM, SIM card did not work in Europe. So I had 45 minutes to learn how to jailbreak my phone. I don't know if any of you ever feel like that when you come to an Ashtanga class where you feel like, I have an hour and I don't know what's going on. You know, here it is, and I have sun salutations. I don't know what those are, but everyone else seems to know what's going on. And then I got to do this balancing pose, and I'm hopping around on my foot. Somehow, when you look around, I don't know if this happens to you, but it definitely happens to me. It looks like everyone else is getting it. Do you have that experience? It looks like everyone else is fine, but me over here, I'm a little disaster. Now, when you're in your sort of focus, you don't realize it, but you have poses where you are also look like you're doing very, very well. You just don't notice other people looking at you in that moment. Well, you may feel intimidated. You may feel frustrated. And you may feel like, this doesn't work for me because all these poses are really hard. It doesn't make sense. Step one doesn't make sense with step two. I felt like that when I followed these instructions. I can't even remember what these instructions were, but they were insane. It was like, connect your phone to your computer, hold function F and the space bar and, and the letter Q at the same time for 35 seconds, and then with your foot, touch your phone. I mean, it was just this thing. I was like, this is not going to work. Like, this is not, I'm going to be in Switzerland and like just have to figure things out and hopefully it'll be okay. But all these instructions didn't make sense. Just like yoga at first doesn't make sense. Get up early in the morning. How many people think that doesn't make sense? I'm going to sign on for that one, right? If you could change that, let's cancel get up early in the morning. That's the instruction. Get up early in the morning. So that doesn't make sense at first. We resist it. Can we just do it in the afternoon? It's so much nicer in the afternoon. Or just midday yoga. Like, wouldn't that be nice? Like lunchtime, power hour. Let's do that. Well, that's not Ashtanga, you know, that's not the traditional practice. One of the reasons why, and there's always these reasons, and you know, later if you go into the software, you know, I'm sure there's some reason why you have to hold all these little weird buttons at the same time, because it communicates to the computer in a computer way, speaking some computer code language that I have no idea about. And the same thing happens with the body. There's a language the body speaks, and it's a subtle language that's not the language of words. It's more the language of music, or it's more the language of feeling and emotion, and it's best done when the language of the mind is not turned on. So the thinking mind operates in words. I'm speaking in words right now, but your body is communicating with my body in a space that is not words. Who's familiar with what I'm talking about? Anybody familiar with something like this? So this is, there are these studies in human communication that show the vast majority of communication happens through body language. So bodies are speaking, and they're speaking without you being aware of it. It's not like you're like, well, her body's saying this, so therefore I think that yoga works. You know, it's not, that's, your, that's your intellect, that's your mind, that's the brain making computational analysis. But body-to-body -body communication happens best when the mind is silent. And one of the reasons why yoga is meant to happen first thing in the morning is because we're trying to actually make a benefit out of that sleepiness that happens first thing in the morning. You know, in the morning, people ask you questions, and you're like, please, just give me a few moments, and then we can speak. I haven't had coffee, and I'll be back, right? My husband is like that, you know. I, I, for some, I actually am very strange. I wake up in the morning and I'm like filled with ideas first thing in the morning. I'm a strange being, but I've learned to keep those ideas to myself. 
Nobody wants to hear them until around nine. <laughs> so now if you're, if you're a normal human being, you know, more like my husband, I think, you wake up in the morning, there's this grogginess in the mind, this kind of silence. And in that silence, the body can be accessed to a deeper degree. So in the silence of the mind, the intelligence of the body arises. This is a, probably the first and perhaps most important reason why yoga practice is advised to be done first thing in the morning. Whatever your morning is, first thing in the morning. As close to sunrise or before sunrise as possible so that you can also work with the natural biological rhythms of the body. Even if you wake up late or later, you'll notice that the mind is in a different space than it is if you wake up earlier in the morning. For example, you wake up at 6 a.m., there's a different quality to the atmosphere of the world around you rather than you wake up at 11 a.m. So it's a different feeling. Life and its busyness has started, and that impacts what messages your body is open to receiving, also just the state of the body. Now, unfortunately, there's a really big benefit to practicing early in the morning. There's a whole host of other things that I could go into, and I'll talk briefly about some of those. The, the, the second most important one, what happens the longer you wait to practice from when you wake up? Who can tell me? What happens? What, and then, and what, what? I'm thinking of something very specific and very fundamental to the human being. Hunger. <laughs> Hunger. You know, you wake up in the morning, you're like, you know, let me just like do my laundry. I'll start doing my laundry, do the laundry. I'm gonna get this done before practice. And then you know what? Oh, there's some dust. Let me clean up my dust and then da da da. And then you know what? Oh, the dog needs walking. Oh, of course, I'm so sorry I forgot about you. Let's go for a walk. Okay, come on. Come back for your walk, and then you're like, oh, pancakes. I need pancakes is what I need. I actually don't need asana. Then your yoga mat's looking there sad at you, and you're like, I sh I, mm. <laughs> start practice hungry, it's miserable. You know, If you can do it, anyhow, you'll get over it a little bit. But hunger is such a big driver so that, that you want to practice as close to waking up as possible for that very sound silly but very important reason, you know, hunger. When hunger is your driver, you can take a whole host of really bad decisions. That's why we've developed this phrase, hangry, you know? So if we think about this, it's extremely important. There's a subtext to that, which is also very beneficial for the body. Earlier you practice in the day, the less likely it is you've had breakfast or any other food items that have been ingested into the body, which means that you are exercising or moving the body in a fasting or resting state which means you can access deeper into the inner organs, you can access deeper into the physical body. It doesn't mean that your practice will be easier, but it means you have deeper access. Right? In the morning, the body is stiffer. Does everybody agree? Yes. Some of are like, see, it should be the evening. <laughs> Definitely, right? Body is stiffer in the morning, and body is so flexible in the evening. Why is that? Right? We're not doing the practice to stretch the body. And this is something every yoga practitioner really needs to just get hammered into their heads over and over and over again, because it's something you'll constantly go back to. Oh, but uh, my, my back bend isn't deep enough, or my handstand isn't good enough. It's not about that. The reason we practice when the body is a little stiffer is, again, you have access to deeper subconscious patterns it, that are held in the memory of the body. It should be more difficult, because we're here not to just touch all the happy patterns, but we're here to touch what we could call the negative samskaras. 
the behavioral patterns that are so deeply held in our subconscious mind that they're, that they're destructive in our lives. These are often, again, subconscious patterns. These patterns, called samskaras in Sanskrit, and aggregate into even larger patterns, which are also called vasanas, just two Sanskrit terms for just large life patterns that aggregate together. Contemporary neuroscience has discovered that there are pathways inside of the brain um, that when they fire, so if you engage in a particular pattern, your brain needs to engage in a particular type of thinking, and that's called when your neurons fire together and you establish a pathway, then the second half of that, who knows that phrase? Very good. So when, when the neurons that fire together, wire together. So you can think of your brain, now we're using this image of kind of, you know, a, a, a piece of technology like your phone or your computer. Well, here we have an electrical circuit. And when an ele electrical circuit gets wired together, that means that the, that the electricity, the thought, easily travels through there. Now, if you want to run electricity to some new place, is that easy? I'm not even thinking, it's like to take that out of the brain. How many of you have ever done any home remodeling? Right? Or seen HDTV or something like that. If you think, running electricity is not the most easy thing in the world. And I'll tell you, there's some place in my bathroom at home where I really want an electrical outlet. I want an electric, I just want one there. I, I would use it. I, I, just, I, I would like an electrical outlet. And then and I investigated what it would take to wire a new electrical outlet there. I would have to break the tile that's in the bathroom, break my entire closet, because that's the nearest source of electricity, so deconstruct my whole closet. If you've seen my closet, that is not something that needs to be deconstructed. Like that, that's, that's like a, a rabbit hole one should never enter. Um, and so that would need to be deconstructed and, and then wired and then reconstructed. And then I thought, oh, you know, an extension cord is a wonderful <laughs> item, you know. <laughs> However, the brain uh, doesn't have the ability, to, you know, nece not, not necessarily true, but what we're looking at when we come into the yoga practice, we're doing new yoga poses, we're engaging in new behaviors, you're looking to change the neurobiology of your brain. You're looking to stop firing on what is already a wired path, conscious or subconscious, doesn't matter, conscious or subconscious. Better if you can find the subconscious pattern that is firing and wiring over and over again in a repetition without you being aware of it. Because those patterns are the ones that you were born with, those patterns are the ones that you learned before you were a conscious creator of your life. Those patterns are the ones that are the source of self-sabotage that come back up and get you <laughs> when you think life is wonderful. They're the source of recidivism, which is backsliding, going back into old patterns when you thought you were past them. How many of you have ever done something like that? You thought you were done with some way of being? I've done that more times than I like. Then what's interesting about that is again, if we think about that fire and wire together, you have a behavior, that behavior is evident. You engage in that behavior and you've been doing it for a while. At some moment you become cognizant. That behavior leads to suffering. It could be something as simple as, you know, overstretching, right? Overstretching leads to suffering. If you overstretch, hurt your body, pull too much, you get injuries, and then that leads to suffering. Multiple visits to, you know, your massage therapist and acupuncturist, and you have to talk to your yoga teacher. I'm sorry, I did it again. I overstretched my hamstring, and I yanked on my foot. You told me not to yank on my foot, and I, I said I wouldn't pull anymore, but I've pulled, and now I have to bend my knee again, you know, and then you feel terrible about it. How many of you have done exactly that? Anyone? Many people, right? Unfortunately, we do this. Then, what do you think now? As soon as that happens, can't believe I did it again. I did it again. 
here I go, can't believe it, did it again, never gonna do it again, I swear I'm never gonna do it again, I'm gonna let this heal, I'm not gonna, but what are you doing? You're firing and wiring the same path. It's the same frequency, it's the same group of neurons, it's the same group of activity, it's the same vibration of thought, you could say, and it's repeated in the body. You heal, and then did you address the root of where the pulling came from? No, you're just like, I won't do it again, I won't do it again, I won't do it again, but the more you think that, the more likely it is to guess what? You're gonna do it again. So you do it again the second time. Anybody done it two times, injured your hamstring twice, three times, anyone done three times? Numerous times, so many lost counts, right? <laughs> right, so now, what do we have? We have a cycle, and this is what a samskara is. This is a cycle. I won't do it again, I won't do it again, I hate myself that I did it again. The more you hate yourself that you did it again, the more likely it is you're gonna do it again. And do it again, you swear I'm never gonna do it again. I hate myself even more, I can't believe it. And do it again, and again. Because the, the brain is just like, it's like a, just you take that pathway over and over again. That's why yoga is hard. Practice first thing in the morning. Practice first thing in the morning when the mind isn't turned on, when there's not energy at those old familiar pathways, and it feels sticky and new and weird, and it feels like, I don't know where I am. These poses are weird and new. I don't know where my body is. I can't feel anything. That's because you're trying to build a new neurological pathway. You're trying to think a new thought which requires so much effort, so much effort. So contemporary neuroscience, this is a statistic that's kind of getting passed around right now, says that by the time a person is 35 years old, the majority of our thinking, and I mean the majority, I don't mean like 50%, I mean something like over 90%, close to 95% of the average 35-year-old's thinking is automated, ritualized, habituated, in other words, set in stone and happening in the subconscious mind. Think about that, that's nuts. That's like nuts. We're like, wait a minute. Those of you who are under 35 are like, well, I, I still have time. <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. And those of you who are over 35 are like, what happens over 35? <laughs> what, what goes on then? We just keep thinking the same thoughts. We keep thinking the same thoughts. Thinking this, if you don't do anything. So you're thinking the same, it's running the same program. And then who has a really old iPhone? Anybody has one of those, the old bricks? How's it working for you? Right? You can hold it up and be like, yeah. <laughs> right? But like those, I mean, even older than that, like the brick, you know, the, like, the, like the brick that came out, like little, like the hard edges. I see some people with those. And it's like, I can see them texting. It's like Morse code, you know? I'm, I'm, I, here, <laughs> you know? And you get like one word texts and you press a button, it takes a really long time. In other words, you know, an old computer, an old piece of technology that hasn't been refreshed, that hasn't been gone in and hacked and made new again, feels stuck, right? Feels stuck. And this is what happens, and you know, what we call the aging process is very much a kind of hardening of our habit patterns so that the brain, as we age, starts to just get into that rut. We get into that, that's all we know. And the aging brain, unfortunately is a source of so much suffering. We get set in our ways, set in our ways, and it's the same thing we do over and over again, but we were never a conscious creator in what those ways are. So yoga is a hack, and it's an, probably the most important thing, and the most important thing that you can do to change the software inside your mind. There's probably nothing else that matters as much as your practice in that way. And I don't mean the practice of, how can I put my leg behind my head? How can I get 10 steps to do a beautiful handstand press? Sure, do all that. But ask yourself, 
why you're doing it and understand that the poses are there so you can learn to speak the language of the body, which is the reservoir of the subconscious mind. There's um, uh, a scientist whose name is Dr. Candace Pert, and she wrote a book called The Molecules of Emotion. And her pioneering discovery was that inside of the body, there are as many, if not more, neuroreceptors for the same neurotransmitters that were previously thought to control emotions and only have receptors inside the brain. So she found, and I'll say that again, because this is complex science, it may be hard to understand. Some of you were like, that was biology from third grade. I don't, I don't, I, would, I, I slept through that. Um, you know, so I'm gonna the, the, the review that for a moment. I had to read that a few times when I was reading her book as well. So normally in the brain, where we, we previously, before her discovery, before her research, previously um, the, the, we, the, the, in our biology studies, assumed and made the presumption that it was the brain that was the reservoir of emotions. And there were receptor cells for the chemicals of emotion. So chemicals like like fear has a chemical associated with it, love has a chemical associated with it, happiness, depression, anger, all have chemicals associated with them. These aren't you know, external chemicals or manufactured inside the body. It was previously assumed that the brain was the place that these chemicals would go and be like anger, 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 and it would happen inside the brain. Dr. Candace Pert, in her book, Molecules of Emotion, she documents her research and, and, and really pioneering discovery that the body has as many, if not more, if I'm, if I'm remembering that correctly, receptors for emotion. So the same chemical that stimulates anger, happiness, love, joy, fear, anxiety inside the brain live inside the body. So that's incredible when you think about it. So when you access body language and body intelligence, what ends up happening is you can make some serious updates to the subconscious mind. And her thesis basically says your body is your subconscious mind. You're thinking, thinking with what you're consciously aware of, but your body is feeling, feeling, feeling constantly and never stops. You can think about this as a person sleeps at night. You know, if you change the temperature, you do it yourself. If for some reason here in Florida, your air conditioning were to give out in the middle of the night, you would find yourself <coughs> naked with no covers on. Maybe you'd be lucky enough to sleep through the night, right? So, sorry if this is too much information, um, but I mean, I, this is the reality. Florida is hot here. You turn off the air conditioning. You're probably all hot now, you know, so sorry. Um, but, but if we think about that again, what are we doing? We are here to make new neuropathways inside the mind, inside the brain, that are actually measurable results. So I'm gonna talk to you about another, um, another, another study that was done to measure impacts of long-term spiritual practice on the brain. There are a host of studies that document the uh, short-term positive impacts of both yoga and meditation. And these are two aspects of the spiritual path which are intimately tied together in everything that you do. Um, when you, you know, when you come to the Ashtanga yoga practice and path. Now, some of these things you could consider to be altered states. So what this means is that while you're practicing, then your tendencies towards, you know, self-negativity, your tendencies towards self-hatred and um, other negative states are lessened. Has everybody experienced something like that? Yeah, that's why we keep coming back to practice, you know? You wake up in the morning, you're in a bad mood. You do your practice, what happens? little bit less of a bad mood. Maybe you don't end the practice and love life, but you end the practice and you hate life less. That's worth it, right? So that's, that's a substantial improvement, you know? Now, everybody's experienced this. This is easily documented in numerous studies. Now, there's an, there was a, um, 
I forget the name of the authors, but there's a book called Altered Traits, which was looking for evidence that long-term spiritual practitioners would permanently alter the neurobiology of their brain, which would be a permanent trait that they would then take off of the mat, off of the meditation cushion, and be different human beings than before they started the practice. So then they started to study long-term meditators, long-term yoga practitioners, people with a minimum of 10,000 hours of practice. What do we know about that magic 10,000 hour? What do you know? Who knows that? Have you heard about that 10,000 hours? Why is that important? That's a level of mastery, right? So a level of mastery, 10,000 hours, a level of mastery. Now, if we think about this, not to you know, speak in a disparaging way about any um, you know, yoga educational institutions in the world, but when we compare 10,000 hours of mastery versus 200 hours of training, I think we can start to really reflect on how much it actually takes to be a master of yoga. So 10,000 hours of yoga, it's a lot of yoga. You know, it's a lot of yoga. That's a lot. An hour a day for how many years? Like a lot of years. <laughs> maybe 20 years, something like this. You do an hour a day. Maybe, maybe, maybe a little more, actually. I'm not, I need, I need to ask Siri to calculate that for me. So let's degenerate. Used, we used to do math and arithmetic on papers. Now we ask Siri. Siri, could you tell me how no, Then the, someone's phone's going to come on. So, <laughs> um, so. Uh, 10,000 hours yoga. Imagine now, for the, how many of you have a sitting practice? Anyone have a sitting practice? You sit for a little bit. Imagine now 10,000 hours of sitting. And we're like, I have to sit there for 10,000 hours? That sounds like torture, right? But now think mastery level. So in this book, Altered Traits, they started to look at people who attain minimum level of, of mastery, 10,000 hours. The unfortunate finding is that people who simply attained a mastery level were, 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 were what they demonstrated was a higher aptitude to get into those altered states. States, temporary states, peace, love, and happiness. Temporary states, self-compassion. Temporary states, forgiveness, oneness. But it, it evaporated. We go back to, click right back to, I hate the world today. So this means even master level yoga practitioners, meditators, were still sometimes falling in love with themselves and sometimes hating themselves. And they kept looking. They thought, no, this cannot be. This is depressing. 10,000 hours of yoga and I just hate myself less? This must be, there must be a better thing. Well, they went to say, are there super yogis out there? Are there people with an astronomical level of practice? They found some what you could call meditation prodigies, people that, um, one example of which is Yangi Mingyur Rinpoche, who uh, had documented at the time of the study over 60,000 hours of meditation. Think about that. That's, that's unbelievable. We're like, did you just say 60,000 hours of meditation? Even 60,000 hours in any skill would be quite an accomplishment. A surgeon that's documented 60,000 hours of surgery, a climber that's climb for 60,000 hours. It would almost need to climb nonstop for 40 years. And Yangi Mingyur Rinpoche has dedicated his life to the practice of meditation. You know? And so there were other people that they studied. And this was something really interesting. I really, really like the results of this kind of really high level dedication. So the brain waves that we were talking about, the fire and wire brain waves, these normal brain waves that are the standard operating system of the mind can be, can be measured um, by a, a, an fMRI and be documented and, and translated into what's called beta waves. How many of you have heard about beta waves before? So beta waves are when your brain is thinking about resources. What am I going to eat? What am I going to do later? I got to do laundry. I'm going to go to yoga. Oh, wow, I really like yoga. And now I wonder what I'm going to wear to yoga. Ooh, my favorite pants are dirty. Beta waves. 
right? So can you identify, like this is our brain, right? And this is where we live our lives, right? Ooh, I wanna go on a trip. Where could be nice to go on vacation? Mm, I didn't like my last vacation. Maybe I wanna go to the mountains this time. I mean, this is, this is our life. Like we spend the life there. The vast majority of our brains, again, the 95% of our thinking, which is automated and subconscious, are, exists in these beta waves. Well, when, and, and we exist here. Now, the, the advanced meditators, 10,000 hours or more, what was interesting with them is they were able to switch out of beta states, beta brain waves, into high-level gamma waves, which is associated with the altered state of consciousness, um, very close to uh, feelings of oneness. Uh, high-level gamma waves are also associated with transcendental experiences, moments of mystical insights when we feel a connection to God, if we choose to call that God, or the experience of some kind of a, a spiritual presence, as well as just a feeling of peace, love, forgiveness, oneness, basically all the things we want, right? So they found that the master level uh, practitioners were able to access that state quickly, but then they quickly returned to beta waves. As soon as it was like, okay, it's time to go, their brains were like, okay, I gotta get my keys, where are my keys, I gotta get over here, all right, I gotta drive, traffic, life, right? Now the super yogis, when they began their MRI tests to establish a baseline for their brain waves, their resting state was already at a higher level gamma than the master practitioners achieved in their deepest states of meditation. Think about that for a moment. Whatever the master level, so let's say here we're on a beta frequency, you're a master level yoga practitioner and you start to really do the inner work, cultivating a field of compassion, cultivating those inner states of, you know, dharana, the concentration, dhyana, the meditative mind, samadhi, the states of deep inner immersion, and you manage to change your brain waves, which is deep work, and you're up here at a gamma level. And these are these moments of epiphanies where you feel practice is amazing, life is amazing, they change your life that high, then this practitioner comes in and their baseline, what they're operating on when they're going about getting in their cars, going around, is this much higher. And we think about that and we're like, oh my God, that's an altered trait. That means that they live in a different reality. Their world has changed for that being. And what was really interesting, it's kind of like a parenthetical thing that's interesting, is that these advanced yogis, when their brains were um, scanned and they were I engaged in these deep, the, the, their deep meditation practices, the very first thing that happened was the researchers thought they were all having a stroke because their gamma frequencies went off the charts and to something that was never documented before. And then uh, the researchers ran in and were like, oh my God, you're having a stroke. And then they were just sitting there meditating going, oh, why are you so concerned? <laughs> I thought you were gonna be dead. Oh, I'm not dead, I was doing the meditation you wanted to study. <laughs> Did you still wanna study it or is there a problem? <laughs> oh, car carry on, you know? And, and, and so this is very interesting when we think about it. Imagine that here you are and you have this tool, this technology, you have this brain, you have this software, you have this, this thing, you know, this body, brain, mind, matter phenomenon that you're working with but you don't know how to work it and there's a whole other vast potential that exists. And this is what I mean when I say that yoga is a life hack. Yoga is a way for you to hack your brain. And what we're aiming for is to one day shift the baseline frequencies of our brain so that we're no longer firing and wiring the frequencies of fear, firing and wiring the frequencies of worry and scarcity and the whole delusional madness of me and mine and instead operating from an entirely different paradigm. We wanna, we wanna change the brain 
so deeply so that we're operating in a different paradigm. So our world is literally different. And this is why the practice is hard. This is why there's, there's discipline and effort and why it takes so much time. What are we up against? The entire inertia of human civilization. Not only are we up against our own lives and all of the personal misery that we've created, but we're up against our genetic inheritance, you know, of all of the history of humanity, which has been kind of orienting towards more and more of the same, except for these few brave pioneering individuals like the yogis of times past who sat in a cave and checked out of the rat race of life and said, I think there's something else and sat there and discovered it and passed it on to us. And we're here today as the recipients of these brilliant scientists who went in there and hacked this crazy software, you know? And we're just novices out here, me too, you know, on the path. And I think, I, I think that's something that, that, that really, if you think about it, keeps you inspired to do the work of practice and really makes you understand that the poses are just a doorway, a tool to get you into that deep inner state. Yeah. Well, I've talked a lot and this, this talk said that there was going to be a Q&A. So that <laughs> let's also have, if there are any questions, we can have maybe a few questions as well. But are there any questions? Hopefully not about the science part. <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big supporter of cognitive behavioral therapy. Well, you know, the way I think is based on your yeah. And congratulations on that, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah.
absolutely. And what's interesting about what's thank you for sharing. What, what's very in, what's your name? Scott. Scott. What's very interesting about what Scott said is that wh as a, what you just you know especially the end. You know, I want to experience these benefits of, of of you know being in love with the world, being okay with myself. These these these, these very measurable and very tangible, real benefits which bring people back to the practice. I want to change my thinking. I want to expand, and then these other measurable metrics, which are all, which are in so many studies about, you know, decreased inflammation, you know, in increased healing responses in the body, increased memory, optimized, you know, performance of, uh, uh, you know, in the world, and also better digestion. All these things that are that are very measurable in terms of benefits of the spiritual practice. What's interesting is if we go all the way back to the yogis in India thousands of years ago, they didn't care about any of that. <laughs> and that's interesting. All of that was a by byproduct. All of the things which are the most popular, like big cells of yoga and mindfulness in our contemporary society, like do yoga, get more flexible, you know, do your mindfulness practice and you'll be better at work, you know? Like all of these things were just kind of like byproducts. What were they after? What were they after? That monumental shift that the super yogis experience is, I don't know what they're living in, but the but, the, but the, the sacred scriptures document the possibility of an immersive experience of oneness, an immersive experience of divinity that, that, that everybody, I would imagine in this room, has at least tapped into once or twice or maybe even multiple times in their life. But there is this possibility of potentially living in that state. Yeah, if you're... And then that's a, and that's, you know, and that's a, that's a, 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 a totally plausible, you know, thesis. Now, the, the, the question is, if you're able to operate in a way that leads you down that path, so there's more of that, that's the ultimate goal of the yoga practice, however, however you can choose to get there. And there are numerous, you know, it's a little bit like, here's a, the, so if you can think about it as a map, Where's, where's your map pointed towards? And your map's pointed towards that state. And that's what's important to recalibrate and constantly remember. Because if you get a map of yoga and it's pointed to what's the end result? The end result is I want like a yoga body with abs and be able to do good handstands. Then your map is gonna lead you there. But if your map is thinking, I wanna constantly recalibrate towards a higher purpose. I wanna constantly recal recalibrate towards an immersive experience of you know, divinity and an immersive experience of God and immersive, whatever, whatever you feel comfortable calling that, you know, th that, that, that powerful source and vibration of the universe, right? So, so, so this importance of constantly to think about, you know, how, uh, th that's the original, that's where the map of yoga is pointing towards. That's where it's pointing towards. Yeah. Yeah. Do you also have one question? I, I do. Okay. Oh, I think that I think that it's pretty. It's a, it's the the defining feature of the yoga practice is not, um, and, and even Ashtanga yoga uh, is not necessarily the form that we get so attached to, but that the components of spiritual practice are present. So that means that the uh, that the form can shift. You know, your Ashtanga practice uh, could look very much like an Iyengar practice at certain times in your life. 
So we get very identified with Ashtanga yoga is primary series, there's five sun salutation A and three sun salutation B, then we do the standing poses, and I, I mean, you, you know, you know what comes next, we're Ashtangi, right? So then, and then we get, we get very identified with that. And then we're like, okay, so these benefits come from there. I've got to do it like this and like that, and da -da -da, but that's not it at all. That's not the yoga method. That's a particular, um, like that's, that, that's a particular version. Like that's like, you know, uh, there are so many different photo apps on your phone, but they all take photos, right? And if the, the bones of the app are the same, you can, one works better than the other. I like how this one works. I don't like how that one works. So you have to go back into what are the bones of yoga? Like what are the foundations? What makes it efficacious? Any practice that's gonna take you deeper into your mind-body awareness, any practice that you're going to be involved in the realm of your breath, working with the breath, being aware of the breath, working with the breath, whether consciously or and by, by, by engaging in what we call breath control and during the yoga poses, or by observation of the breath and not using control. That's one of the fundamental foundational elements of the practice. Without that, you know, without, without the breath, we're missing a, a whole realm of awareness. Second, we need body intelligence, body awareness. So if you're moving with the effort of not feeling the body but forcing the body, well, then we may be a little bit off course. So then we're here, well, what are we doing? Feeling the body, we're constantly feeling the body. If that's there, that's the foundation of the practice. The third element is working with thought, working with thoughts and emotions, being aware of the quality of your thoughts, the direction of your thoughts, what you're thinking, what you're thinking about, and how you're feeling. Who can identify those three elements as the, the Tristana method? Could you hear those as the Tristana method? So we think Tristana means get and do the primary series. We think Tristana means, and those are the three prongs of traditional Ashtanga practice. We think that's specific for Ashtanga as we know it meaning primary series, but it's not. Ashtanga is Patanjali yoga, the, the type of yoga aimed at the spiritual path, at the spiritual awakening. <coughs> Well, that, as long as those three elements are present, you can call it Iyengar yoga, you can call it Ashtanga yoga, you can call it anything, but if those three elements are present, that's the essence of the journey. Make sense? And, and particularly for Ashtanga, I particularly dedicate Ashtangis need to hear this more than anyone else, because Ashtangis, we have this thing that, like I start to call Ashtanga guilt, you know, because it's like, as soon as you modify a posture, you're like, I have to modify. <laughs> you feel so bad, you know? Because you think you're not doing the method, but to remember, oh, that's not the method. So it's like, okay, this app is not working for me today, so I need to use a different app to take a photo. You don't get like, you don't feel like you're cheating on that first app. You just use the other app to take the photo. You're like, oh, I, I didn't use ProCam today. Like today I used Camera Plus. Like, wow, you don't walk around the whole day feeling bad. But Ashtangis, we feel really, really bad. Like we're like, oh, I didn't bind my hand today. I used an STRAP. You know, and you, right? <laughs> so we get it, you know, I think, again, Ashtangis uh, are the ones that need to hear that almost the most because we get so attached to the form, that one particular piece of software that may work really, really well, but maybe not always. Make sense? No. Yeah. Any other questions? Good. One more? Okay. Mm-hmm. Good question. So let me just rephrase your question so make sure I understand, all right? So what you're asking is in order to 
stop the pattern which exists that has been fired and wired together and what do we do to stop that and how do we make a new pattern? Okay, so number one, they're two separate things, okay? Stopping, firing and wiring the old pattern is a different thing than firing and wiring a new pattern. Mm -hmm. You need them both. How do you stop firing and wiring the old pattern? You don't need to go back to the source, but it may come up. You don't need to figure out and go and think, well, where did this come from and why am I doing it? And is it because, you know, my mom never got me a dog and I always wanted a dog, so I feel unloved. I'm just making funny things up right now. I'm not saying that that's specific to you, right? So, so, so we don't need to go into that. We can, and it may come up to the surface, but you don't need to. The way that the yoga teaching works is we have this analogy of a wind-up toy. You familiar with what a wind-up toy is, right? We don't do that anymore. It's now the wind-up app. Right. So there used to be wind-up toys where you have a little object and a mechanical thing. And you wind it and you wind it and you wind it and you wind it. What do you need to do in order to let that thing unwind? What do you have to do? Yeah, you have to stop. Stop. You just have to stop. So you want to stop that pattern? Stop thinking that. You just ha you have to notice each time that you think that thought. Notice each time you engage in that behavior and then just not do that. Just choose in that moment. Okay, I'm not doing that. Oh, there it is again. I observe that my frustration with myself is present and I am going to choose not to think that. And in that moment, you have stopped the inertia a little bit. So you've chosen in that moment. What can you do? These are, this, is, this is where actually cognitive behavioral therapy is wonderful because you can redirect your mind to a whole bunch of other focal points. Or if you're a yoga practitioner, it's really simple. I observe that frustration with myself is present. I observe that my body hatred is present. Here I am, I've done this so many times where I look down and I'm like, I don't like how my body looks today. And I'm like, I observe that my body, my negative body self-talk is present. Instead of continuing that train, I am going to take five deep breaths. Here I go. And then you squeeze your bandhas and you take five deep breaths. That distracts your mind enough so that you've broken the inertia. And then usually if you're You've, you've been practicing yoga for a while, five breaths, you squeeze your anus for a little bit. After that, you're like, you're not thinking about that anymore because you're so involved with like, then you're mad at your anus because it didn't squeeze properly for five breaths. And then that's a new thing you can worry about. But then you've at least broken that thought. Here's the problem with the way that most people engage in trying to wire a new thought. We never deal with that thought that exists in the subconscious mind that's firing and wiring over and over again. We never deal with that. We never feel it. We just are like, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Oh, I don't want to think about that. Oh, that's so negative. Why are you so negative? Like, why are you always angry? You know, Ugh, it's like repressed anger. Like, Ugh. And, then, and then we're like, but wait, no, you've got to go in and be willing to be present with it so that you can feel it and feel the inertia that leads you in there and then choose not that. Here it is. Here's my pattern, and I'm going to choose not that. The scary thing about this is that all of those patterns happen subconsciously. They're happening without you being aware of them. So the yoga practice is designed to make you aware of your participation in that destructive pattern. Let me give you an example of something that happened to me recently on a meditation retreat. I was re like uh, the, the a recent meditation retreat that I did. I was sitting. That's what you do in meditation retreats. You sit there. It's uh, very exciting. Um, so I was sitting there, and then I didn't know how it happened, but I would find myself slouching. I'd be sitting, and I would be like, mm -hmm. and I was like, you know, why are you slouching? How did this happen? 
the slouching demon has attacked me, you know? That's kind of, I felt like victimized by the slouching. I was like, why am I, this is, what's wrong, you know? And then, um, then I went to speak to the teacher about it. He's like, how's it going for you? Are you remaining equanimous? Are is things going well for you? And I was like, you know, I feel fine, but I keep slouching. And then he said something interesting to me. He said, well, if you're in a lot of pain, why don't you try to lie down? And I was like, I didn't say I was in pain. I said I was slouching. And so he made the assumption, you're in pain, therefore you're slouching. But I was like, I'm not in pain. I'm just, this, this slouching demon attacked me. So I'm wondering, is there something that you could do? Could you put a guard here or something? So then I thought, okay, this man thinks I'm in pain. I don't think I'm in pain. Uh, that's interesting. So I gave myself a task. On the next sit, I said, I'm going to find the moment before I slouch. I need to be that vigilant. I want to find that moment, the moment before I slouch. I need to find that. I'm going to find that because this is a subconscious pattern. I'm slouching in a response to something I'm not conscious of. So here I am. Okay. So I sat there. I was like, okay, my job in this sit, I don't care about the breath and all what I'm supposed to do. I'm just going to like sit here like, a, like I'm on a hunt to find the slouching demon. So I was like, I'll wait for you. <laughs> you know, I felt like, you know, I was like a, the lion on the prowl. Like, I'm going to find you, find you, waiting, 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 waiting. And I was, it took a long time. I was like, I'm waiting, find this thing, find this thing. And then, lo and behold, pain. And I was like, I found you. You hurt, <laughs> right? And then there was this excruciating pain that slowly bubbled up from my sitting bones and just like felt like knives just pressing in through my whole lower body. And I was like, oh, <laughs> my body is intelligent, <laughs> you know? So this was a subconscious pattern. Pain had not yet arisen, but my body knew that pain was coming. So it slouched. This is a subconscious pattern. You understand? I wasn't aware of the pain, but then when I was so vigilant, then I was able to be present for the pain arising. And then I could feel how I wanted to slouch. I could feel the inertia of it. I could feel the feeling of, but if I just, but if I just, but if I, uh, oh, I just want to, just a little, I, and I was, no, I'm just, pain is present. What is pain? Nothing. It's there. It's a sensation. It's pain. No, no damage can come. You can sit there for an eternity. Nothing will happen to you. There's not like some weird leg behind them. I'm just sitting there. So I could rationally talk to myself. You're not going to be injured. It's just pain. So here's the interesting thing. After the meditation retreat, I saw the same pattern in my life. <laughs> in moments, I saw myself starting to react in a pain avoidant way and react without me being aware of it. I saw like behaviors and, and that, that, would, that would seek to ameliorate situations that I wasn't being truthful about or these situations. And I, saw, I saw it manifest as an actual life pattern. And then because I had the experience in the meditation practice, I was like, okay, at least I'm going to not do that. Least I'm just you know it was I'm just not going to do what I did before, and the reason why most work in affirmations. How many of you have tried affirmations? How's that going for you? <laughs> Sometimes it's, you know you write the things down every day and you're like, where's my prince? You know what I mean? You're like, right? So the reason why most of our affirmations don't work is because you never get to that level where we're, we're, these subconscious patterns are so powerful. They're operating without our awareness. So we need to touch them, feel them, and then just choose not to feed them. Touch them, feel them. Each time you choose not to feel them, some of those neurons die. They're just like, she doesn't need me anymore. Your brain's so intelligent. It's like, well, I got to put some resources over here now. Then when you get to the deeply uncomfortable space of the unknown, neither for nor against anything. I'm not engaged in the old pattern. 
but I haven't chosen a new pattern yet, then this is the most beautiful space that you can plant new thoughts. And those are hard because they'll feel weird and you need to consciously think about them. Have you ever seen any um, like programs about how stroke patients recover? You ever seen anything like that? Right? Maybe you're so someone like loses paralysis of the body and they need to learn to pick up something again. They have to rewire the brain. You know how much, you see how much effort they put in just to get like, yeah, you moved my finger. And everyone's like, yeah, you moved your finger. My dad had a stroke before he passed away and I saw him go through that. And like moving the finger was like, we had a huge milestone today. What happened? Your dad moved his finger. And everyone's like, yeah, I was so happy. And then I'm like, wow, this is so humbling. If you think about that, but if you don't delete before you reprogram, the reprogramming is conscious. It happens in your conscious mind. I, you know, write down every day, I am beautiful, I am beautiful, I am beautiful, I am beautiful, but your subconscious mind is just there pulling you in this momentum, engaging in choices and behaviors rooted in, I'm not beautiful, I don't like myself. And until you stop feeding that, then those new thoughts have no hope because they're up against something so much more powerful. Does that make sense? It, it, it helps, huh? It helps, it helps. But if you, don't deal, if you don't deal with that core subconscious pattern, if you don't touch that, it's all superficial. It's yeah, all. The redirection is, 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 is in the pause. You know what happened? You can, but you, you can. You can. You can do that. You can totally do that. But but the the key you, it, that's the key is addressing the root. And you can there's numerous. But so here so here's the problem. There, like there's a, there's a texture of that which is controlling. There's a texture of that which is controlling. And so you can. Hold on a second. Hold on. Hold on. Let me finish. So then, so, so here we are, and you could touch something very, very deep within yourself. Yes? You feel it. It's there. Now, have you in that, you know, have you in that moment then immediately planted something else? My experience is that when the thing that you try to plant in that moment is not rooted in your highest potential. It's rooted in an idea of what you think you want, and that idea is still connected into the past. So that if you can just be in this space of what you could call the unknown, the unpredictable, and just wait for a moment, 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 that something new may appear that's radically different than what you thought. Then you have that thought, then yes, then you can go back to there. But if you do it with your mind and you're like, I should say I'm beautiful every time I think I'm ugly, then it's just like neener, 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 and then like nothing changes. But if you're here and then you touch that place where maybe, maybe, maybe it's something else, maybe it's I feel like I'm a failure, I feel like I'm not good at anything. When that comes up, you sit with that, I feel like I'm a failure, I'm not good at it. Oh, there it is, there, squeeze my bundas, breathe five times, redirect, back to a neutral point, back to a neutral point, there it is, back to a neutral point, there it is, back to a neutral point, there it is, back to a neutral point. The inertia of that is gone. You walk out, you're driving your car, you look at the sky, and then you realize, I have a potential to see beauty everywhere, which is different than I'm a success. It's not a fair, but it's not an intellect. So when you're saying a because, like that, wait for it to be delivered to you is what I'm saying, rather than 
you know, the, the try to think a positive thought to replace a bad thought. Then we're, then we're like, then we're like in this kind of like replace, then we're in the mental warfare. Look at whatever, so then it was great. So let it be, so that's all I'm saying. But, but so wait for it to be delivered to you and then, and then go for that one. But what I find happens in when we, is, is when we're in this mental warfare that we do this like immediately, like we, we read in a book that we should do this type of thinking and then when it operates on that level and it's not truly connected, it's not received, then we just continue the same, continue the same. Mechanical, mechanical. yes, controlling, that's what I meant. Controlling, mechanical, we manipulate rather than receive. Yeah. Make sense? Okay. So I think we're gonna, I don't know how many of you are staying for the class, but they're starting to look like impatient people outside. Um, so let's end with an ohm all together. And then those of you who are staying for the class, you can, uh, Monica will help you put the mats out. I'm, I'm not the mat person. So hands in prayer for a moment. for a moment, notice the quality of your breath, notice the feeling in the body, the quality of your mind and your emotions, and register that subtle shift, and allow yourself a deeper breath, and softly open the eyes, thanks for joining everyone, namaste. <laughs>